This morning, I'm going to assume, as I try to do in every one of our worship services, that there may be some of you here who uh, may not be very familiar with the Easter story. You know, uh, it's very interesting that when you begin to become acquainted with the Bible, it, it will appear to you that the Bible almost seemingly goes out of its way to establish what we call the veracity or the truthfulness, as well as the significance, the eternal significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ upon which Easter is based. And as you begin to look through your Bible, as you begin to read your Bible, you begin to see that there are many events that are recorded surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you begin to realize that Jesus indeed appeared after he had risen from the dead to a number of individuals. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, that Jesus actually appeared to over 500 people at one time. Again, to demonstrate that Jesus indeed did rise from the dead. And he appeared to various individuals, and one of them, very interestingly, was a woman. In fact, women were the first to witness the empty tomb of Jesus. And this is something that you may not be aware of, but the Bible really has a very high view of women. And Jesus had a number of women followers, including a very significant figure called Mary Magdalene. Now, even if you've been in the Christian faith for some time, ask yourself the question, who was Mary Magdalene? You've heard of her before, right? Mary Magdalene, who was he or was she? And, and the Bible says that Mary Magdalene was a woman who actually owed her entire life to Jesus because Jesus had delivered her, the Bible says, of seven demons. That means that Mary was living in the throes of darkness and despair when she met Jesus and he delivered her. And some commentators will make the uh, assertion, although never with much dogmatism, that Mary Magdalene may, may also have been part of the sex trade. That's probably not the case, but, but there are certain illusions that that may have been the case. We don't know for sure, but all we know is that Mary, like all of us deep down, were in need of Christ. And Jesus delivered her and set her on a different course. Now, one other thing before we read from our passage, we need to understand, and this helps set the setting for what we're considering this morning, it was Mary Magdalene with a number of women who actually witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. She saw the man who saved her life die a slow, painful, agonizing death. And when she witnessed the expiration of his final breath, her world turned up upside down. And she fell into a state of despair and also doubt. And the doubt carries with her as she goes now to the empty tomb of Jesus. John chapter 20 if you have your device, you can turn to John chapter 20, verse 11, or if you have a Bible, or you can take a look at the screen above my head. All right, John chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. But Mary, again, that's not the mother of Jesus, but Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I, I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, they, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. You notice how the story ends on a very high note. All's well that ends well, as the old saying goes. Right? I've seen the Lord. And yet, when you take a look at the beginning of the story, it begins in a very different manner, doesn't it? It's not all's well that begins well, as far as Mary is concerned. What do we find in the beginning of the story? Mary, kids, did you notice that? What was Mary doing at the very beginning of the story? She's doing this. She, she's, just, she's, she's crying. The Bible says she's, she's weeping. Actually, according to the original language, she is, she's sobbing. She's sobbing, which, of course, as you go through the story, that raises the question, why would Mary be crying so much? Why would she be sobbing? And the answer to that is that Mary Magdalene, at this point, simply cannot wrap her mind around the reality of Jesus rising from the dead. Mary, instead, is, is caught in despair, because she's not looking at the empty tomb through the eyes of faith, but she's looking at the matter rationally. And all she sees is the empty tomb, and all she sees is that there's no body of Jesus, and all that she can rationally conclude at this point is, well, somebody must have taken the body away. The question is, where did they take the body? Now, bear in mind that Jesus had on a number of occasions, called his disciples together, the 12, but in addition to 12, there were a number of other followers, and no doubt Mary Magdalene at some point was there when Jesus spoke these words. He said, the Son of Man, in reference to himself, the Son of Man must suffer and die at the hands of God, godless men, be buried, and then on the third day rise from the dead. Now get that. He ended that with, by saying, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. Do you get that? He's very clear. Mary, too, hears those words. But the fact of the matter is, is this is so outside of any normal occurrences in life, somebody rising from the dead, that Mary finds herself just in the throes of doubt. Now, I don't know if you know this, you probably know this, but some of you here may not know this this morning, that, you know, Mary Magdalene was not alone in this. 
In fact, the Bible tells us that every one of the followers of Jesus, every one of the disciples, actually, when they heard first the report that Jesus had risen from the dead, didn't believe it. Simply didn't believe it. Let me, let me give you an example. It comes from the Gospel of Mark. A.V., will you put that first passage on the screen? When Jesus rose on the first day of the week, he appeared first, first to a woman, Mary Magdalene, out of whom he delivered seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, notice what it says there, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. <laughs> you know, I think there are times when we think that, oh, if, you know, do you ever think this way? Like if we were in the midst of the disciples and we heard Jesus say these words, understanding that he was the Son of God, well, of course we would believe him if he rose from the dead. We would be anticipating that. Oh, no, no, we wouldn't. We're no different than the disciples. The disciples didn't believe it, the reports of Jesus rising from the dead either. And notice what Jesus did. He wasn't real happy with it, and he rebuked his disciples as if to say, you were there when I told you I was going to rise from the dead. Why didn't you believe this? The interesting thing is that when Jesus deals with Mary in this story, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. In fact, when Jesus deals after the story with a man named Thomas, known as Doubting Thomas, we don't get an indication that Jesus rebuked Thomas either, but he gave Thomas, he gave Thomas what he needed. It was that, it was the evidence. Jesus said, here, put your finger in my hand, the nail prints in my hand, and put your hand in my side, and stop disbelieving. Thomas, believe! And so too, Jesus now deals with Mary deals with her doubt, and now proceeds to dispel that doubt so she draws near in faith to him. So how does he do that? All right, so Mary goes to the tomb early in the morning. She looks in the tomb. What does she find? Two angels. There's a brief interaction with the angels, but then the indication from the story is that uh, Mary senses someone's in her presence. I think women particularly have this uh, feeling that if there is uh, either possible danger or something that they can't quite explain, there's just a, a woman's sense. And maybe that was the case with Mary. And Mary senses there's someone behind her, and she turns around. And who is there? It's Jesus. And Jesus asks Mary two simple questions. Woman... Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? And then also, um, as we would say today, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And you notice in the story that Mary does not recognize Jesus. She thinks he's, he's a gardener, actually. Like he's a kind of a caretaker of the, the burial grounds. And which raises the question for a, a, for a lot of people, like, well, why didn't Mary recognize Jesus? If he was indeed alive, then why, what, what was going on there? And the answer to that is in, in a resurrected state, in a glorified state, there's something about Jesus that 
would look the same, but there's also something about Jesus that does not look the same. The Bible gives us the impression also that one day when we find ourselves in Christ and Jesus returns and we are raised in a glorified bodily state, there's going to be things about us that look the same, but all the imperfections in us and other things about us are going to look very, very different. And beyond that, we can't say much. Well, so it was the case with Jesus. So Mary does not recognize him, but the problem is Mary also has a veil over her eyes because she's not looking at Jesus with the eyes of faith, but she's looking at him with the eyes of doubt. So Jesus asks a question, why are, you, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? Why are you sobbing? And who are you looking for? And Mary responds and she says, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And Mary says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus says to Mary, probably looking her in the eye, he says, Mary. Now, sometimes when, when people read the passage out loud, they may read it in this way, uh, where Jesus said to her, Mary. I want to suggest to you that it was perhaps a, a bit more personal than that. Jesus looks at Mary and says, Mary, Mary. Or in the original Aramaic, Miriam, Miriam. And it was at that point that Mary senses something. And you wonder what it was about when Jesus said the word Mary to Mary. You wonder if she recognized something in his voice, or maybe it was the eyes. You ever notice that when people get older, there's no difference or very little difference in their eyes. So like, for instance, they have bright blue eyes. Those bright blue eyes shine almost the same when they're 70 or 80 than when as when they were 10 years old. And maybe it was something in the eyes, maybe it was something in the voice, but she recognized something. And, and Mary responds by saying in Aramaic, Rabuni, Rabuni, which means teacher. Now bear in mind that, that Jesus, as he's interacting with Mary at this point, is dealing with her in a very personal way. He interacts with her in a personal way, probably looks her in the eyes, speaks to her in her native tongue, calls her out by name, her native name, Miriam. He's dealing very personally with, with, with her right now. And, and I, would, I would suggest to you quite pastorally as well. Remember, she's the great, he's the great shepherd of his sheep. And Mary, as a woman, has this visceral, very emotional response, right? And what is, what is her response to Jesus? What does she want to do? Well, some translations say that, that she just wanted to touch him, but a better translation would be this, that she, she actually wanted to cling to him. And, and as a woman here this morning, if you have seen someone that maybe experienced a great tragedy and you, you, you thought to yourself, you don't know if they're going to live or they die, but they actually in the end live, what's going to be your first reaction if you had a hard attachment like Mary did with Jesus? What's going to be your response? You're just going to want to take hold of them and grab them and, and, and hug them or cling to them. And that's what Mary seeks to do with Jesus. But what's Jesus' response? A very interesting response. Jesus essentially says, no, no. 
And you say, here's, here's another question, like, why would Jesus say that? You would think that, that the kind of relationship that Jesus had with Mary, he would just say, you want to cling to me, I will cling to you. Isn't this wonderful? I'm alive. But he, he doesn't. He says, he says no. And you, you raise, raise the question, why is that? Is that because Jesus thought as a Savior, you know what, this might be somewhat inappropriate for a woman to, to do that to me? And I want to suggest to you not, because later on in John 20, Jesus deals with Thomas, and he, and he invites Thomas to touch him. He says, here, put your finger here in my hands and your hand in my side and stop disbelieving but believe. The Bible also says in the Gospel of Matthew, which uh, Brother Bill read a little bit earlier, I don't know if you noticed that, but there, when a number of women realized that Jesus was alive, they fell down before him and they worshipped him, and the Bible says that they touched his feet. And there's no indication that Jesus said, that. No, no, don't do that. So why does Jesus say no? And I want to suggest to you, although this is a notoriously difficult passage, but I want to suggest to you that what Jesus is doing here is he's establishing to Mary that the relationship that they had with each other before is not the relationship that continue in the same way in the future. You think about it, it's very reasonable for Mary to want to cling to Jesus because in a sense she was so close to him already and in clinging to him it's like she wants to keep him and keep him the way that he was and Jesus says, Mary, we cannot do that. I'm the risen Lord, I'm the risen King. This relationship cannot be as it was. Now the relationship changes. Mary, I don't want you to touch me because it is time for me to ascend to my Father. How does Jesus put it in verse 17? Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not ascended yet to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary, I came from my Father, I came from heaven, and now I must go back. I must return to my Father. To give us a little bit of a kind of a breather here, this, in, in reading this, it, it reminded me of, of a, a, a situation similarly that um, happened to my father in a reoccurring dream that he had um, after my brother, uh, younger brother, died a number of years ago. And my mom uh, recorded it in a, in a book that she had written called Song of Triumph, a published book. And this is, this is what she wrote. A.V., if you could put that up there. From the Song of Triumph, my mom wrote, I woke from a deep sleep to hear my husband whimpering. I knew the reason. His reoccurring dream seemed so real. In it, my brother Jack uh, was alive. He would be standing at the foot of the bed with a faraway look in his eye. And when Dale, my dad, lovingly reached for him, Jack would gently say, I must return to my father. And without looking back, he would walk purposefully toward a blinding light. The experience was both painful and comforting. I, I bring that out, not first and foremost to, to draw attention to my family, but to, to make you think about this, that this must have been somewhat what Mary experienced. Something that when Jesus spoke these words to her were both painful and comforting at the same time. Painful because she, she can't cling to Jesus. In a sense, she must let him go and have him return to his father. But also comforting, knowing 
that Jesus had explained to his followers elsewhere, I must leave you and it's profitable for me to leave you because once I leave you in time, I will pour forth my spirit who will come upon you and be with you and in you forever. Painful and comforting. So Jesus says to Mary, I must return to my father. And in the meantime, Mary, you must live by faith. And in faith, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the disciples and I want you to tell them that I am alive. And Mary is obedient and immediately she goes forth to the other disciples. And how does the story end? Mary says, I have seen the Lord. I have seen Him with my eyes. He is not dead. He's alive. It's precisely at this point that Mary's transition from despair and doubt becomes one of faith and joy and trust. And the question that, that must go out to us this morning is, is this. Really, fundamentally, do we, do we share that same faith? You know, I think as um, churches go, Compared to many churches, we may be on the more conservative side of things. But there are times as a church that we have to get back to real fundamentals and ask ourselves questions like, but really what is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? What does that really mean? And what are the implications of that for my life? And another fundamental question that's, that should be raised this morning is this. What about my faith? The faith, if I profess faith, is that faith, is that trust, is it truly in Christ? Is it living? Is it genuine? Is it, is it the kind of faith that, like Mary, wants, wants to, to, to cling to Jesus? And do I experience that same resurrection power of Jesus in my own life? That has changed me, that has transformed me, because the gospel changes everything, and how is that evident in my life? Those are the kinds of questions that we have to ask here this morning, on this Easter morning. Because you see, my friends, you and I, we live in a culture of death, don't we? It was uh, John Zietzma last Sunday, if you were here. I remember uh, John appropriately prayed for um, uh, the residents of Nashville, Tennessee, and particularly... Uh, our brothers and sisters, a place called Christ Covenant Church, uh, Presbyterian Church of America Church, where this great, terrible tragedy happened, this, this shooting. A number of children died, and the, and the pastor's own daughter of that church uh, died in that, that terrible, terrible incident. And you know, it's... Um, We look at that tragedy, and, and, and we can recall a number of things about what happened. But, but I don't know about you, but for me, I just thought, you know what? This is just one more shooting that is symptomatic of the fact that you and I live in a culture of physical, moral, spiritual death. But this morning... As the church of Jesus Christ, we don't celebrate death, right? We celebrate life. We celebrate life. We celebrate the life 
of Jesus Christ. But we also celebrate this truth that it is this life of Christ that is forwarded to and given to all of those who recognize that they not only themselves are a part of a culture of death, but by and large by themselves are dead in sin and need to come alive in Jesus Christ. So what the resurrection of Jesus Christ teaches us is that that life, life in this life as well as the life to come, comes through His resurrection power and through His Spirit and through His Word to all those who are willing to die to themselves in order that they may come alive in Jesus Christ. See, that's called the gospel. That's called the good news of Jesus Christ. And also this. You may be a person here this morning who, when listening to, I don't know, the last 15, 20 minutes or whatever, how long I've been speaking, you, 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 you hear the preaching, and you, you heard the story that Pastor DeYoung read from Matthew chapter 28, which gave us the basic details of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And maybe you hear these things, and you hear the preaching, and you kind of go, yeah, that's all very interesting. I, I know it's all a part of Easter, but there, there honestly is somewhat of a response of a, eh, you know, like, whatever. I mean, you're not touched by it. But I want you to ask yourself the question, what if I, referring to yourself, what if I would change my whatever into, like, what if? What if this is actually all true? What, what would happen if it actually happened in history, in space and time? What if all these events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ are actually true? Ask yourself the question, how would that actually impact your life? Would it? If so, how would it? And even if you have a trouble grappling with the veracity or the truthfulness of the story, and you're, or you're just wondering, is it all true? Wouldn't you want it to be true? Wouldn't you want it to be true? Wouldn't you want life to conquer death? You talk to people in our culture today where they understand, they don't even have to be a Christian to know that we're living in a very dark time and a time of, of shootings and homicides and overdoses of fentanyl and methamphetamine and all of that. I mean, we get this in the news constantly, every day. Where does their hope lie? How do they know that life is going to conquer death? How do they know that there's ultimately going to be good news? I mean, you have to... If you don't embrace the resurrection, you just don't know, honestly. You don't know. You hope, but you don't know. The Christian response is different. We know that life will conquer death because life did conquer death in Jesus, and Jesus promises that to all those who come to the end of themselves and draw near to him in faith. And that's the beautiful truth. And if you're willing to come to that point, then you're not alone. And I want to end with this. There was a man many years ago who was a brilliant French mathematician. His name was Blaise Pascal. He lived during the time of the 1600s. And um, during the time of the 1600s, most people knew of the Christian faith, and most people knew about Jesus. And it was Blaise Pascal who knew about Jesus. Uh, he was a heavily Roman Catholic society in the country of France at that time. He knew about Jesus. He knew cognitively, that is, in his brain, 
He was aware of Jesus, but he, by his own admission, never had an intimate walk with this Christ and never really embraced the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. That is until, I'm going to spare you for the sake of time the details, but God worked in the heart of Blaise Pascal. And what he did for Blaise Pascal is what many people experience in this life. We call it an awakening, where they wake up from a deep slumber because the grace and the Spirit of God begins to make an impact in their life. And when Blaise Pascal moved from simply a cognitive understanding of Jesus to a deeply felt experiential understanding of Jesus... He said this after his awakening, after his conversion. If you put that last quote in there, Blaise Pascal, the Christian's God is not simply the God of mathematical truths. No, the God of Christians is a God of love and consolation. He's a God who fills the hearts and souls of those whom he possesses. He's a God who makes them inwardly aware of their wretchedness and their need for his infinite mercy. He's a God who fills them with humility, joy, confidence, and love and makes them incapable of having any other end but him. Those are the words of a converted man. Those are the words of a man who received from God's hand the gift of faith, and as a result, he did what Mary would not be allowed to do. He clung to his Savior in faith and in trust. And my friends, this is what the Lord calls us all to this morning to have no other option in our lives but by the compelling of God's Spirit to cling to Jesus by faith with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all of our strength. May God grant that to us this morning. And I want to say this, if there are any of you here this morning who have questions about this story, who are dealing with matters of struggles or faith in your own life, I would love to talk to you afterwards. Feel free to talk to me. All right? With that in mind, before we sing a response in Christ alone, let's have a brief prayer together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love from all eternity that you sent forth Jesus into this world, not only to die for us, but to rise so that we might have the guarantee and the beautiful experience of rising to new life in this life as well as looking forward to eternal life to come. Thank you for this gospel message. Thank you for this good news of Jesus. We pray that it would resonate with us, not just today, but in the coming week, indeed, in the coming months. God, grant that, we pray. Work that in us, we ask, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.